You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. But now as we direct our hearts to his word, his word is living and active. It is for us. It can feel at times that God is silent, um, but when we go to his word, we're reminded that he still speaks to us and has so much to give us today. And a little bit of where we are in our story through Joshua, they are now preparing to take Jericho, this fortified city that stands between them and the promised land that God has given to them. There is this city that is walled up and uh, God has given them instruction, detailed instruction to the way that they will take and conquer the city is by walking around the city every day Six days, one time around the city, and on the seventh day, uh, they are to walk around the city seven times, and then they'll give a loud shout, and the city will be overtaken, and it is a bizarre uh, war strategy, and yet um, God is successful in this. And so Joshua chapter 6, we're going to be starting in verse 15, we'll be picking up here on the, the seventh day of the execution of this plan. So... Joshua chapter 6, starting in verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. This is God's word. What we didn't read in in this chapter is this long, detailed description of the execution of God's plan to capture the city of Jericho. The Israelite people were to walk around the city once every day for six days, walk around it seven times on the seventh day and give a loud shout, and the walls of Jericho would collapse inward, and the God's people would then go into the city, taking the city and killing all of its inhabitants. And this first several verses of chapter six are slow. They're slow reading. There's a lot of repetition. It's like reading an instruction manual for God's people. And all of this is a build up to this moment where Jericho is defeated. And if Hollywood were making a movie on chapter six or the taking of Jericho, it would be this action-packed film. There'd be extensive scenes of the combat between God's people and the inhabitants of Jericho. There'd be the hand-to-hand combat scenes that dominate the movie. There would be this great character story on Joshua, I imagine, and the army of God's people. 
it would likely make up a ton of the film, but in God's telling of the story, how he tells it to us, the actual combat and the accolades and strengths of God's army are of very little interest to the author. They are of very little interest to us. The the military conquest of Jericho is told in just a very matter-of-fact way. There's only a brief mention of the details of the combat itself, a verse and a half in the whole chapter, a verse and a half. The, the most descriptive part of the combat is, it seems to be written just as like an information for information purposes only. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. A matter-of-fact report of what has happened. And this should clue us into what is ultimately important about this passage. Here is what we see. It's not about the military conquest. It is not about the action-packed taking of the city. Here is what we come to see as clues in this passage of what is really important. We will see what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. We see how to live a life of devotion to God. And we will see where we are to find mercy when we fail. Now first, what does it mean to walk by faith and not by sight? These people are literally walking by faith. They are instructed to walk by faith. If you were to ask me, what does it mean to walk by faith in your life, I would have to say, well, it depends. Faith looks differently in how it's exercised in your life in different circumstances. But the common ingredient in all situations of of walking by faith is the conviction that God will remain faithful even if our circumstances are telling us otherwise. To walk by faith is saying that God will be faithful even when it's hard to see how things will come to pass in a faithful way. If I wanted to show you what it means to walk by faith, I would maybe take you to this passage and take you to the story of Jericho. And that's, in fact, that's exactly what we're doing today, looking at this story and seeing what does it mean to be a people of God that walk by faith and trust in him. And we're told in the New Testament book of Hebrews that this victory was won, not by military strength, not by weapon, cunning military strategy, But this battle was won, an entire city overtaken and flattened. It was done by faith. It was done by faith. Hebrews 11.30 says this, It was by faith that the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. In the midst of following God, it is easy to doubt or even question, how might God work this thing out for my good as he promised that he would? How will God ultimately turn these circumstances around to prove his love for me when we are discouraged, when we're scared, when we struggle, when we don't see how things will come about for our good as he has promised that they would? Consider this passage. Faith is not required for them to get in this situation, but rather it's going to be required for them to get through it. God says, walk around this city for six days, and then seventh day, walk around it seven times, and don't make a sound. Walk around it, and then on the seventh day, after the seventh time, blow these uh, the ram's horns as loud as you can, and shout with a loud shout, 
and the city will be destroyed. How much faith does it take to just go to the city and walk around it? Once. It doesn't take much faith at all. You can go and do that. But how much faith does it take to do that again on the second day after nothing's happened? Maybe a little bit more. How much faith is going to be required on the third day when you're doing the same thing over again or the fourth day or the fifth day or the seventh day after you've walked around it six times and, and you're wondering to yourself, you know, is this going to work? Is this worth it? Faith is not needed here for them to get into the situation, but enduring the long process of obedience and trusting that God will do what he said he will do, that is where faith is going to be tested in their life. I can't help but imagine the kind of doubts that they may have encountered. What were they thinking in the middle of day four? You put yourself in their shoes. What were they thinking? Why are we walking? Why are we do this? Why don't we just take the city? This is not how you take a city. Have you watched Lord of the Rings? You see how they do that? They, you go to this fortified city at the edge of a mountain and you ambush it and you climb over the walls. You scale the walls and you breach their protective structures and you get into the city and then you take the city by force. But this is very different from how God instructs them to do it. And it's, common, it's in these moments that their faith is going to be put to the test. I wonder what kind of reaction that the military generals and commanders and the priests would have given to Joshua when he came to them with this plan. We're going to take this city. How? We're going to walk around it. And then we're going to yell. From a human standpoint, this feels so irrelevant and so ridiculous of a plan. But these were the people who had just seen God part the Jordan River and they walked through it on dry land. Our problem of faith is not so much that we don't think that God can do what he says he can do, but, we, but that we foolishly convince ourselves that our ingenuity and our intelligence and our experience can be the replacement for obedience. We believe intellectually God is faithful, he can do what he says, but our real faith is tested when we replace obedience to God with what seems reasonable and rational to us. These are people literally walking by faith. They're walking. That is what God's asked them to do, to walk by faith, not by what you see, not by what seems reasonable. To walk by sight is to say, this doesn't make sense. The way that I see it, it doesn't make sense. To walk by faith is to say, this doesn't make sense to me. This doesn't have to make sense to me. It just has to be what God has told me. That is what it means to walk by faith. If you've ever been, I mean, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've already noticed this about God. You've noticed what seems to be a character trait of God and how he works. And here is this. It pleases him as a general rule to choose unlikely, undeserving, and unpredictable means of accomplishing his plans in you. That's what he does. If you have been a Christian for any amount of time, how many times have you uttered to yourself late at night, you know what? That worked out exactly as I imagined. Never. You don't say that. You do not say that. 
But it pleases God to always bring us into that point where we will be so surprised by how he is working and bringing it out to be. Because God chooses the weak things to surprise the strong things. He chooses the foolish things to surprise the wise things. He chooses the things in this world that seem utterly inadequate to accomplish his plans. That's what he likes to do. There will be times in your journey of faith where you will feel like you have it all together and he wants you to remember that you don't. And that is okay. It was never designed and meant for, it, for you to have it all together in order to enjoy the plans of God. Because he desires to convince us that his plans are not dependent on our achievement, but it's dependent on his promise. God is independent of natural means, and this means he is independent of even the laws of nature and the laws of physics. He is not tied down to your resources or what you bring to the table. He is not confined by your wisdom. He does not consider your abilities or lack of abilities when he commands to you. He does not consider any of those. He does not plan his purposes in this world based upon what you can bring and do and how you can contribute. He makes it so unreasonably clear, so clear that his plans are just so strange to convince us that he will do what he says he will do and he'll prove that he doesn't need us to accomplish it. And Jericho clearly shows this to us, that to walk by faith is to say, I don't need to know how it will happen. I just need to know that God is faithful and will accomplish it. Secondly, this great story shows us how to live a life of devotion. Once we have this conviction of faith and walking by faith and walking around the city, there is a, a life of devotion that must be exercised here. The bulk of verses 17 to 19 really deal with the instruction for God's people for what to do with the stuff and people that they encounter once they get into the city. And so first there's this, here is what you must do in order to get the city. And then here's what you must do once you have the city and you're inside and you encounter people and things. And, and it's very clear what we see. First, he makes it very clear that these things and people are to be completely destroyed. Completely destroyed that the people and things and values of this culture and the artifacts that they find there and the pleasures that they would encounter are to be completely off limits for their enjoyment. We should pause here because this is, this is uh, the retelling of this story pauses here. And it's almost like a parenthesis within this story of God's commands. There is this pause of seriousness we need to consider this strange concept that this is, that God would instruct them to go in there, a people that have been wandering for 40 years with limited possessions, and to go into this city and, and all of these material possessions that could change their life forever for generations to come, God says, you are to not have any of it. The concept here is to devote to the Lord all 
that is there. To devote literally means this, to hand over to God, to do with whatever he wants to do. To hand everything over to God and to let him do with it whatever he pleases. Consider the people and the possessions of Jericho. God says these things and these people are irrevocably my possession. Everything belongs to God. God owns every created thing and every part of creation and every person whom he has created. God says, this is mine. Every human artifact, every raw material in the earth that they draw out of the earth and melt and make beautiful things with, God says, that belongs to me. Every human life owns their existence to God. By de facto and by his own declaration, God has the right to do with anything and anyone he pleases without consulting with us. That's intense. We're confronted with this reality in this passage. We're confronted with this reality throughout Scripture and even in the New Testament book of Romans. And here is what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, verse 20. He says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And for the case of the people of Jericho, after generations of provoking God and their graphic wickedness against their creator, God was driving them out of the land. He was driving them out of existence. And by recognizing their claim on all things, God's claim on all things, all people and all things, God's people were handing their own hearts over to God and devoting their lives to God. By saying, God, your claim is on everything, even these people. Who are we to question your motives in your purposes for them? And by trusting in God and then devoting everything to the Lord, they're in essence devoting their own life to God. And saying, my life is yours. Hand over my life to the Lord to do with whatever pleases you. Devotion to God is essentially this. It's essentially saying, God, I belong to you. I am entirely and irrevocably yours. Do with me what you want. Let your will be done in my life. But I have a few provisions, right? See, this is what devotion sounds like. And then there's our hesitation, our struggle to see God as the owner of all of things, the creator of all things, and by de facto and his own declaration, the right to do with whatever he desires to do with them. If everything in Jericho belonged to God, then to keep any of these things in disobedience for themselves 
to align themselves with the things that were dedicated for destruction and it would be bringing judgment upon themselves. We're always devoted to something. You know, see, we're never neutral. We're always devoting our life to God or devoting ourselves to judgment. We're devoting ourselves to judgment by keeping the things that God says, these are not yours to keep. We're always devoting ourselves to the holiness of God by offering him our lives and everything in it. Here is the, here's the difficult part of this passage, if we haven't found it already. And I had to really search this, and I had to really think about this. Is this really what's happening here? Is God really saying this? And I think, I think it is. He says this, devotion to God requires absolute, complete, unquestionable, and unwavering obedience. And we are to feel the weight of God's judgment for saying mine, where God says, not yours. We're to feel the weight of God's judgment for embracing habits and lifestyles and attitudes to which God says are wicked. And that is what this passage is, is meant for us to feel in this graphic taking of the city, this, this strange destruction of an entire people that God is serious about disobedience. And that's why I'm really, really glad that they talk about Rahab. Because just as we feel the weight of judgment where there is a failure to obey him, we are reminded of Rahab. Did you forget about Rahab? We talked about Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 in a great story of this woman who cried out for mercy and received it. And then we get into all this military conquest and these wonderful big stories of miracles and the crossing of the Jordan. And then we get to this and they talk about Rahab again. It's like, oh yeah, Rahab. We need to be reminded of her. Because verse 15, the city and everything in it, every wicked person, every wicked thing, every sinful thought, every disobedient action, God is irrevocably and completely a God who brings justice on disobedience. And all of it should be devoted to God for destruction, except Rahab, the prostitute. Every time Rahab is uttered in Scripture and we are told of his story, her story, we're reminded that she is a prostitute. Why? Not to, not to shame her, not to degrade her, not to put an identity on her as, as, as someone who's less than to remind us that where God's judgment is, there is always provision for mercy. Because even in the midst of God's judgment, you're shown where to find mercy. Where to find mercy. That's our, our final rhythm here in this, the final point. The single exception to the destruction of Jericho is Rahab and her family. Why? Because she was good? Because she was obedient? We know that's not true. Quite the opposite. She was a well-known prostitute. We learned her story several weeks ago. She was spared because she cried out to God for mercy when she knew that judgment was coming upon the city. She cried out for mercy to a God who she knew was capable of saving her when nothing else could save her. And she knew that there were only two options when you come face to face 
in the presence of God's judgment. There are two options. Either you fight against his purposes and you lose, and you take the full weight of his judgment and condemnation and are destroyed, or you confess the reality of who he is and you cry out for mercy, hoping to find forgiveness in him. And she cries out for mercy. She realizes that God's people have come to their city for one purpose, and that's to destroy it. When she sees the, Israel, the spies come into her city, she says, if you're here, we're already dead. If you're here, that means you're not coming to just be our neighbors. You are here not even to engage in combat. You are here to bring the judgment of God on our city, and no one can escape it. Genuine faith is not simply content in knowing about God, but in taking refuge in God. Rahab's confession is not only a matter of correct belief, but of desperate need. It is not enough to just say we have a God who is faithful. We have a God who is merciful. We need to be able to reconcile and understand that God is the owner of all things, and if he judges wickedness in the way that he desires, who are we to judge that? And he requires complete and perfect obedience to his commands. But he provides a way for mercy, and that way is narrow. It is only found in him. Rahab's story is a story of powerful, a powerful, supreme, and merciful God who saves sinners who were previously under the weight of his judgment. And that is Rahab, a sinner, always referred to as a prostitute, possibly even a sacred prostitute who served in the public fertility shrine. She was a well-known prostitute, well-known among the highest officials in Jericho, among the king himself, and his highest soldiers were clients of Rahab. And this city was notorious for child sacrifices and lewd and wicked acts of sex on children. And it was just a wicked and rampant place. And Rahab was right there in the middle of it all, in the worst of activities. She was a pagan, a sinner, a person with notorious immoral reputation. And yet she is honored in the New Testament as a member of Jesus's genealogy not because she got her act together, not because she somehow she pleased God with her good uh, rhetoric or character. You see, when God's judgment and wrath falls on the disobedient, it is only by faith in the provision of grace which he offers that sinners can be rescued. And there's no way out apart from that. 86 words in this story are dedicated to Rahab and 120 to the combat of Jericho. Because right? I just I have fun counting things like that. And what does that tell? Because the story of this sinner being rescued is just as important as the story of God fulfilling his plans to give them the promised land, to take this city. Even after hearing of the destruction of Jericho, our author comes back to Rahab again 
Hey, don't forget about this. This is, this is just as important. This is just as important of, of the success that God will have, the, the faithfulness to his commands, to his promises, the plan for your life. What's just as important is the mercy he gives along the way as you fail to obey him. We are meant to be left not with this despairing weight of God's judgment for our sin. We are meant to be left with the gracious provision of salvation for those who cry out for it. For the Christian, the story of Rahab is the story of, of, of the shepherd's search for that lost sheep. The shepherd who goes out and finds that lost sheep to bring her home. It's a story of transformation that comes to those who are previously despised by God, dedicated for destruction, and now are called his friends and children. How does it happen? How do we find that mercy? I think you know how, but I'll remind you, because that's why we're here. We find it at the cross of Jesus. There is such a unique connection between the destruction of Jericho and what happens at the cross. And here's how we see it. Because on that cross, Jesus, the Son of God, is devoted to destruction so that we could be devoted to righteousness through faith. The sinless Son of God If anyone is ever deserving of being devoted to glory and devoted to honor and devoted to righteousness, it is Jesus Christ who never sinned, who obeyed his Father perfectly. But instead, he is devoted to destruction on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he was despised in our place. He took our shame. He takes our guilt. He takes our sin. And there he defeats the curse of sin so that we could be cherished. You see, the, the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, it, it doesn't take away the judgment of God. You, you see, sometimes it's easy to think God is a God of judgment. He's a God of wrath. And then in the New Testament, he's a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. Well, first of all, we see the God of mercy right here in the Old Testament. And second of all, we see the God of judgment in the New Testament. The judgment doesn't disappear. Instead, it's transferred. You see, the judgment that was meant to fall on us because of our rebellion against God, it is transferred from us and it's placed on Jesus. God never does away with judgment. He just transfers it to Christ. And when the sinless Son of God dies on the cross in our place. The judgment that was meant to be fallen on us falls on him and he takes it to the grave and he leaves it there in hell. And he could not be held there because he was a perfect and adequate substitute for our sin. And he pleased the demands of God for our righteousness when he died. And so by the power of God, he was resurrected from the grave in triumph over sin, defeating death, defeating the curse of sin. By the same power, 
we are given new life when we trust in him. Those who see their need and cry out for mercy are spared from the judgment of God because it's been placed on Jesus. He takes it for us. He is toppled. He is destroyed. He is He is dedicated for destruction and killed for us. It's God's delight to save sinners. It is God's delight to save sinners by offering his son for us. It is Jesus' delight to go to the cross for you and I. You see, in devoting himself to his father, Jesus devoting himself, what does Jesus say on the night before he died? He said, God, I, I take this from me. Take this cup of judgment and wrath from me. Don't pour this out on me, but not my will, your will. You see, that is what he is saying. He is saying, all of my life is yours. Do with it what you will. And then he walked to the cross and died for us. And we are told that with, for joy of our rescue and salvation, he endured the cross. No one is too far gone. No one is too far out of reach. No challenge is beyond God's ability to intervene, to bring about his rescue. And we are to walk by faith, giving our hearts to him and crying out for mercy along the way. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.